We'll turn in your Bible to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. This is the longest psalm in the Bible, and I'm sure you're getting a sense of that as we continue week by week to work through this psalm and we talk about it. Last week, as we looked at verses 81 to 88, the psalmist focused in on how his afflictions, in the midst of them, he turned to God's word. That was where he found the answers for the troubles that he faced. This morning, as we begin, his eyes are raised a bit higher than his afflictions, at least as we get started. He looks to the heavens and to the earth as types of God's word, pointing to God's unchanging faithfulness. Now remember, the psalm is all about God's law. The psalmist is celebrating God's law because it is the sure foundation that he needs. It gives the answer to his afflictions. It provides the standard for right judgment. It reveals God's character and his will, and it shows the path that we should follow. This morning, we're going to look at verses 89 through 96. So follow along as I read Psalm 119, starting in verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Well, our first verse this morning, verse 89, says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. God's word is a perfect expression of his nature and character. There's nothing inconsistent in God. So there's nothing inconsistent in his word. Since God himself is eternal, his word is eternal. It is fixed, unchanging. That's very different from man. We change all the time. We grow and we learn. We change our minds. We give in to temptations. We're often fickle. David says in Psalm 62 verse 9 that man is lighter than a breath. In other words, David is saying, if you could put a breath or wind on a scale and put man on the other side, the wind, the breath would be more substantial than man is. So our words are often insignificant. They're changing. They're not something to count on. So for us to have something to count on, something solid for us to be anchored to, it has to be something outside of us. For us to have a a sure word that we can trust, it has to be not a word from us, but a word from God. That's where we will find something constant, something solid. God's word is sure, it is fixed. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. God's word is what brought everything into existence Not only did God create everything through his word, but he continues to uphold it by his word. 
Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. So God's word brought it all into existence. And right this very moment, his word is upholding it all keeping it functioning just the way that it's supposed to, maintaining the order and the operation of all of it. So when God says in his word that something is true or that he promises to do something, you can count on it. Man's word is just the opposite. It's constantly changing. Think about the messages that we're constantly given, for instance, in the media, things like trust the science, but the science changes. Right? One year it's butter that's going to kill you, and the next year it's margarine. Man's word is unsteady. It's unreliable. God's word is unchanging, though, because God himself is unchanging. Nothing will change God's purposes. James tells us every good, and, every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God's purposes will never change. And God always has the power to do exactly what he says he's going to do. With man, salvation is impossible, Jesus says, but with God, all things are possible. And Paul tells the Philippians that God has power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Last week, in the previous eight verses, we saw that the psalmist talked a lot about affliction that he was facing, difficulties he was going through. Sometimes those difficulties can lead us to doubt God's word, to question his promises. But we need to remember that we can't interpret God's promises by our circumstances. We need to interpret our circumstances by God's promises. Thomas Manton reminds us, he says, the, the promises stand firm in heaven when they seem to fail on earth. So we need to follow the example of the psalmist. He faces all these difficulties in verses 81 to 88, but then he lands on the certainty of God's word in these verses this morning. Spurgeon writes that it's as if after tossing about on a sea of trouble, the psalmist here leaps to shore and stands upon a rock. And that rock is the word of God, the certainty and sureness of God's promises. Verse 90 continues the thought, your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. So just like God's word is firmly fixed in the heavens, verse 89, now we see the fixedness of the earth in verse 90. The earth stands fast. It's solid. Why? Again, because God's word upholds it. He upholds all things by the word of his power. So just like the certainty of the heavens is an illustration for us when you, when you watch the patterns of the stars and the sun and the moon and you, you can predict where things are going to be, that certainty is an illustration for us. So is the certainty of the earth. This faithfulness of God endures to all generations. Not only does it endure to all generations, but scripture teaches us that we are to pass it on to each generation. In Psalm 78, 
Asaph expresses this idea very well, the idea that each one of us is supposed to pass on the promises of God, the, 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 the word of God to the next generation. Listen to just to the first eight verses here that I read from Psalm 78. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children or from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them the children yet unborn, and arise to tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So the faithfulness of the Lord that the psalmist praises in Psalm 119 is something that you and I are called to pass on to the next generation and beyond. It needs to be actively taught with explanation. You, you may have heard the story, this is kind of one of those old preacher illustration stories of the woman who was fixing a ham and she puts it in the pan and she cuts both ends off of the ham and puts it in the oven. And her husband asks her, why are you cutting the ends off of the ham? She says, well, that's the way my mother did it. And so she goes and talks to her mother, says, why did you always cut both ends off the ham? And her mother said, well, that's the way my mother did it. And so she goes to the grandmother and says, why did you always cut both ends off the ham? I only had a small pan and that's the only way it would fit. Right? So we tend to do that. We tend to just do things because it's what we do. But this, this truth about the word of God, about his promises, needs to be passed on from generation to generation, not just in our habits. We need to actively explain it and teach it to our children and to our grandchildren. His faithfulness endures to all generations, and all generations need to hear it. Then we have one more verse that completes the thought that the psalmist began in verses 89 and 90. Verse 91 says, By your appointment they stand this day, for all things are your servants. What's the word they referring to? Well, it's referring to the heavens and the earth from verses 89 and 90. The heavens and the earth stand this day by the Lord's appointment. Why? Because like everything else, they are God's servants. They do his will. The heavens and the earth then are a great example for us. They do exactly what God says. They obey his word in an orderly fashion day after day. They can be counted on because God can be counted on. They are God's servants, meaning they do his will. Moms, can you imagine what it would be like if every time you asked someone to do something, it got done. I know just yesterday, 
the mom who runs our household asked me to put the red onions back out in the fridge. And guess what I did? I forgot. It didn't get done the way it was supposed to. God's creation is not like that. When he speaks, it happens. And you can count on it. The heavens and the earth always obey God's word. God's laws for the government of the universe are fixed. They are certain. They are sure. God appointed the heavens and the earth to do certain things, and that's exactly what they do. God made all things for himself, and it's fitting that he would do with those things as he sees fit. Proverbs 16 Verse 4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, and that includes us too. We are to follow the example of the heavens and the earth, obeying the voice of the Lord. They are signposts to us of the certainty of God's word, of his rule and his governing of the world. And we were created to obey his voice too, to trust his word and to live by it. In verse 92, then, the psalmist says, If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. We've seen the psalmist talk about his afflictions, his difficulties. Here he says that the reason he didn't perish in the midst of those afflictions was his delight in God's law. When you face difficulties, the place to turn for answers, for comfort, is God's word. And the reason for this is that God does things for our good. Very familiar verse, but Paul tells the church in Rome, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That means the afflictions are intended by God for your good. And it means that God has intended his word for your good as well. It's all part of his design. And it's also worth noting here in this verse that the psalmist says this consolation, which came from his delight in God's word, came in his affliction. It's not just that someday, 50 years later, you'll look back and see that it was all for the good. Well, that's true, but it's not what the psalmist is saying here. Here, He's saying that he would have perished in the affliction if it hadn't been for his delight in God's word. That means that the comfort came in the affliction. This is the kind of comfort that comes from believing the promises of God. Even when you're not yet experiencing the result of those promises. You have confidence in what God has said and that brings comfort in the affliction. This is the kind of hope and comfort that you can have before the test results come back. It's the kind of peace that you can have while the relationship is still broken. It's the kind of joy that you can have when there still isn't any money to pay the debts. And one other thing that we should think about here, if God's word is not your delight when things are going well, you won't delight in it when the trouble comes. Partly because you won't even know it. But you can't delight in God's word. If you can't delight in his word in the good times, then you won't start in the hard times. Thomas Manton writes, The law of God must be your delight in prosperity if you would have it your support in adversity. So ask yourself, do I delight in God's word? 
Do you desire to read it? Do you want to come to know God in its pages? Learn to love God's word. In verse 93, the psalmist says, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. God has given the psalmist life, spiritual life, and this has come by means of God's word. Now think carefully about this for a minute. God is the one doing the action of bringing life. God's word is the means by which he does it. It's not that God's word is some sort of magic charm that just brings life. It's God who brings life. His word is the, is the means that he uses to do it. We can't separate God from his word. Now, we have a tendency to try to do that. When you pick up your Bible and you read it, do you consciously realize that it is God saying this? Do you believe that? When Jesus stepped up to Lazarus' tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth, his words were the means by which he gave Lazarus life, but that same life-giving power is in the very words that you and I are reading this morning. Do you realize that? Do you believe that? By them you have given me life. And because this has happened for the psalmist, he says that he will never forget God's precepts. He will remember them. He will stay loyal to them. And that's the right response. It's a response of gratitude. Because God has given me life by these precepts, I will stay true to these precepts. And why wouldn't you? If these laws of God are what God uses to bring life, then why would anyone want to leave them behind? So I will never forget your precepts. In verse 94, the psalmist goes on to say, I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. The psalmist belongs to God. He's one of God's people. The Bible teaches us that God has chosen people for salvation, for belonging to him. Now, let me just give you a few of the basics of what scripture teaches on this. In John 17, verse 6, for example, Jesus is praying for his disciples and he says, I have manifested your name, so the, the name of the Father, to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. God has chosen people for salvation, and he has given them to his son, Jesus. Then in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul tells the church, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. How did the people that God has chosen become his. Well, the purchase price, so to speak, is the blood of Christ. So now these people that God has chosen to be his are also said to belong to Christ. Earlier in the same book, Paul says, you are Christ and Christ is God's. So we are to see that our identity is that we belong to God. In 1 Samuel 30, there's a story about David and his men, at one point they, they come across some, uh, a city that has been raided and they start going and looking for the men who have done the raid. And as they are seeking to find these men, they come across an Egyptian man in the open country. And David asked him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? To whom do you belong? How would you answer that question? 
if someone asked you, to whom do you belong? Do you belong to Jesus? Would it be obvious from your life if someone was observing you? You know, we get hung up on the doctrine of election, the idea that God has chosen certain individuals, but the reality is that those who belong to Jesus are those who have themselves chosen to give themselves over to him. His choice comes first, but our choice of giving ourselves over to him is very much a reality. Here's how Thomas Manton explains it. He says, we know God to be ours by giving up ourselves to be his. His choice and election of us is a secret till it be evidenced by our choice of him till we choose him for our portion. So yes, his choice of us is eternally fixed. Yes, it comes prior to anything that we do. Yes, it is based completely on his grace, not on him looking at something we were going to do in the future. But none of that negates the fact that all of those who belong to God are those who have completely given themselves over to him. And that none of those who are not his have done so. There will be evidence in our lives if we belong to him. Not just the words that we say, but our actions and our affections will show it. Both Peter and Judas said they belonged to Jesus. Both failed him. But Peter's failure was followed by repentance and renewal. His life showed that he belonged to Jesus. And this is why in the case law that we looked at last week, and what we're going to continue looking at this week, it's relevant here. We looked at slavery or being a bond servant. It's the question, who do we belong to? In Psalm 12, one of the characteristics of those who oppose God is that they ask, and this is verse 4, rhetorically, they ask, who is master over us? In other words, we don't belong to anyone. When a man sees himself as autonomous, under self-law, not subject to God, his life will be completely disordered. But, as we saw last week, if we have been purchased by God, if we belong to Christ, if we have found true freedom in the house of our master, and we say, I'm staying in this house. I'm being adopted by this master. This is the place I belong. Then we can say with the psalmist, I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. In verse 95, the psalmist says, The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. Now, as we've seen before, the wicked want to destroy him, to bring him down. And what will be his defense? God's testimonies. This might seem like a strange strategy. How are you going to fight against the wicked using God's law? Well, remembering that God is the ultimate judge, the psalmist can be sure of God's approval if he keeps God's commands, regardless of what the wicked say or do. It's easy to start fighting against the wicked using their strategies and methods. But that's never the right path. Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. It has a different source, a different logic, a different standard, a different way to victory. Now that doesn't mean we shouldn't be strategic. 
Jesus says that we're supposed to be as wise as serpents, but at the same time, we're to be as innocent as doves. Wisdom to fight strategically, but innocence through obedience to God's commands. And so John Calvin encourages us, let us learn then to fight in this way against all the subtleties of Satan and malices of men, and notwithstanding that they will go about to destroy us, yet let us fasten our eyes upon the word of God and devote ourselves to it and persevere therein to the end. Our last verse this morning, verse 96, says, I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Here, the psalmist sets up a contrast between, on the one hand, what we think of as earthly perfection, and on the other hand, the perfection of God's commandments. The psalmist doesn't say that he has seen an end or a limit of perfect things, but rather of all perfection on earth itself. What kind of limits are there on earthly perfection? Earthly perfections are limited in scope. Something might be really good and useful in one area, but not much help in another. A perfect hammer is great if you need to drive a nail, but not much help if you need to unscrew a lid. A perfect system of wealth is great for generating capital, but if you find yourself terminally ill, that wealth has limits on how much it can help you. Earthly perfections are also limited by time. Things break down, they rot out, they decompose, they become obsolete. And that's just in the short term. In the long term, all earthly perfections only last until the end of time, not beyond. God's commands, though, are exceedingly broad. They are useful and helpful in every situation. 1 Timothy 4.8 tells us that while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So young people, as you look to your future and you're thinking about what it is that you're going to do with your life, where do you place your priorities? Where are you going to find those answers? So God's commands are exceedingly broad. If you learn to obey him, that applies to every area of life. That brings blessing across the board. All of the earthly perfections are good in their own way. And they may be things that you should pursue, but hold them in the right order of priority. The limitation of earthly perfection also applies to the laws of men in contrast to the laws of God. The laws of the United States, for example, at its founding, were in many ways very admirable. They took the best of many law codes that had come before. They put them together into a great system. But even that system has limits and liabilities. Those who enforce it can only reach so far, earthly rewards and punishments. And it only lasts so long, people have found ways to bypass and undermine and thwart those laws with their wickedness. But God's law is exceedingly broad. It is unchanging. It is perfect. Because the lawgiver is unchanging and perfect, and his laws reflect his character. 
I hope you find those verses helpful and applicable in your life. There's so much there in each verse in this whole psalm if we turn around and look at what does this mean for me on a daily basis. At this point in each message, we've been broadening out and looking at a larger principle and some laws that illustrate it. I'm not going to give you a new principle today. I just want to continue with the one that we began last week, and that is the principle that God's law is for our good. God's law is for our good. Last week, we looked at Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 6, the laws regarding male slaves. This week, we're going to pick up where we left off in Exodus chapter 21, and we'll look at the laws for female slaves. And we should see again that God's laws are for our good. So turn with me there to Exodus 21. As you're turning, let me just kind of remind you, in Exodus chapter 20, we have the Ten Commandments. Then in chapters 21, 22, and 23, we get the basic law code, and it starts to move into case laws that illustrate how we are to apply the Ten Commandments and the law codes in all of the various situations of life. But the very first laws that we are given after the Ten Commandments are the laws about slavery. And the reason for that is that Israel has just been rescued from slavery themselves. They've been redeemed by God. Now they belong to him. Now they are slaves to uh, to God. But it's a good slavery. It's a good household with a good master. And they are adopted as sons. They're able to inherit. And now in verse 7... We continue with laws about female slaves. So just follow along as I read. Verse 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. So the Hebrew woman here who becomes a slave is not released in the seventh year like the male slaves are. If you compare this to Deuteronomy 15, which is similar but includes some different details, there seems to be a contradiction at first. There we read that in the seventh year, the female slave may go free like the male slave. The difference is that here in Exodus 21, we're looking at a woman who is purchased with the intent of becoming a wife. Since marriage is permanent, she doesn't leave in the seventh year. Now, Before we look at the three different scenarios in which the slave might become a wife, we should note something about some cultural differences regarding women and marriage and money. When a bride was being purchased, the father of the groom made a payment, typically to the bride herself. Okay, And this was going to be her money then to do with as she wished. Often she would keep it in coins that were strung on her body. It's a kind of insurance that she had with her in case something happened or she's divorced. She's got her own money with her. 
that comes from the bride price. It's entirely likely, for example, that the woman in Proverbs 31, right, we talk about that Proverbs 31 woman, it's entirely likely that she is using her bride money as a business investment. We're told, for example, that she considers a field and buys it and uses her funds in lots of other ways to be profitable and productive. This is probably her money, not her husband's, that she's investing and using. Now, her businesses seem to be home-based businesses, but they're independent businesses that she's operating nonetheless. But it also happens that some women are sold as slaves. Likely, this is out of necessity because her father is in debt. So he's in serious debt. He's unable to provide for his entire household. And one of the solutions is that he gives his wife to be a slave or a slave wife. And the funds that normally would have gone to the bride, in this case, go to her father, that he can use then to pay off debt. So she wouldn't have anything of her own here unless she married, and that marriage becomes part of the contract when she is sold. So whatever the situation is, marriage is written into the contract when she becomes a slave. So this situation a woman being sold as a slave rather than the regular purchase of a wife is what is in view in the regulations we're looking at in Exodus 21. Money is still changing hands like it would in any marriage, but it's not the bride who gets it and she doesn't have the status of a free woman then. She's not independent and able to care for herself in that way. There's three possibilities of marriage that a Hebrew woman might find herself in relevant to our text here this morning. Number one, she might be sold to a master in order to become his wife. This could happen when she is of marriageable age and so the, the marriage takes place right away. Or it might happen earlier while she's younger in anticipation of the time that she's ready and then when that day comes, then the marriage happens. Number two, she might be sold to a master in order to become a wife for his son. And number three, she might simply be sold to be a slave with the intention that she becomes eventually the wife of another slave in the household. That possibility is something that we saw back in verse four. We talked about that last week, so I won't go back and repeat that today. Well, the first scenario that our text envisions is that the slave woman was designated to marry the master, but for some reason that doesn't happen. The text says that she does not please her master, but we don't know with much certainty what exactly that means. But regardless, he chooses not to marry her. If this happens, then he must let her be redeemed. That means that her relatives may buy her back. The master may not sell her to foreigners. She is to remain part of the covenant community. And all of this, of course, is for her good. It's ensuring that wherever she is, she will be part of the covenant community and she will be part of a household where she will be cared for and protected. 
The second scenario is that the slave is designated for the master's son. And if this is the case, then she's to be treated as an adopted daughter. She is to be well cared for just like any other member of the family. And the third scenario is that the master, after he has married the slave wife, has taken an additional wife. What does that mean for the first wife, the slave woman that the master had married? Well, the law here isn't speaking to the question of whether or not it's a good idea that he's taken another wife. Rather, the focus here is on the slave wife, the original wife, and how the law will ensure that she is cared for. And the law gives three very specific requirements here that the master must maintain for the slave wife, even if he takes another wife. Number one, first, he may not diminish her food. The word is literally flesh, and it means good food. It's what the complaining Israelites said they wanted instead of the manna that God was giving them. And the point here is that the master may not decrease the quality or the amount of good food that the slave wife gets. He might be tempted to do that since he has a new wife and in some respects, apparently he's not been satisfied with the slave wife, but she is to receive food as good as everybody else in the household gets. Second, he may not diminish her clothing. This includes regular clothing, everyday clothing, but the word specifically refers to the heavy cloak. The heavy cloak was what you would wrap up in at night. It was your blanket. It was, it was shelter for you. So this word kind of signifies protection and warmth and shelter as well as just simply clothing. And the husband must provide these things for her. Third, he may not diminish her marital rights. This seems to be referring to intimate relations. And the point would be, not only does she have that ongoing relationship, but that eventually she is provided with children who will then be able to care for her in the years to come. So these provisions of the law, you should be able to see fairly clearly, are for her good. This is how God is ensuring her protection that she will be provided for. In other words, God's laws are for our good. Let me, as I begin to wrap up here, just kind of give you two points about slavery in general. We touched on this last week, but probably not clearly enough, so I want to take another stab at it. The kind of slavery being spoken of here is different than slavery in our nation's past or slavery as it functions in many other parts of the world today. And there are misuses and abuses of slavery in the Bible too, okay? But what we're seeing here is slavery as regulated by God. Another term for this kind of slave is that of being a bond servant. It's language that God uses to describe our relationship to him. Slavery here, as described in Exodus 21, functions as a blessing. It's a means to move a man to maturity and responsibility. It's a means to ensure that a woman is protected and cared for. So what we're saying is that this kind of slavery in the Bible is describing a good thing, not an ideal thing. Slavery exists only because sin exists. 
But that doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. We could say the same thing, just by way of analogy, about sacrifices. Are sacrifices a good thing or a bad thing? Well, certainly scripture presents them as a good thing. But sacrifices are only necessary because sin exists. And once Jesus offered himself as the final sacrifice, all of those earthly sacrifices are done away with. They were temporary. The same thing is true for slavery. It only exists because sin exists and it's temporary. That means it's a good thing, but it's not an ideal thing. The movement in the storyline of scripture is a movement from slavery to freedom. That's what redemption is in a sense, if we understand freedom rightly. God redeems his people from slavery in Egypt. He brings them out into freedom. But another way of saying that is, he takes them from the control of a harsh master to being slaves of the best, most benevolent master of all, himself. So they become like the slave who chooses to stay in the master's house. Why wouldn't they? They've found true freedom in his household. And at the same time that they are now slaves to God, they are also adopted as sons. The New Testament picks up the same language to describe us. We are slaves to God and we are adopted sons. We are slaves to God and in that we have true freedom. So if we ask ourselves, how do we apply this set of laws today? We can answer it on a practical level and kind of on a symbolic level. On the practical level, there are principles embedded in these laws about slavery that would be helpful for us today. If we were being obedient to God and applying these laws, we would find ourselves in a better situation. Principles about restitution and crime. Principles about debts and freedom. Principles about caring for those who need it. That we could learn from all of these things and apply them to our modern context. At the same time, the more that we live in accord with God's law, the less these things will actually be an issue. As God's kingdom grows on earth, the needs being addressed by these things should be decreasing. Now, on a symbolic level, these things should teach us something about our relationship to God. He's redeemed us, and we owe him our lives. He cares for us, and he provides for us better than anyone else ever could. So we should learn to live in gratitude and freedom, just as the slave obeyed the voice of his master, we should always obey the voice of our master. And the movement of scripture from slavery to freedom should help us better understand what God has called us to do. In our homes, we want to see our children move toward the freedom and independence that comes with maturity. In our nation, the more that we learn God's house rules and live by them, the more that we would find ourselves in an environment of true freedom. Let me just finish this morning by reading Paul's words to the Corinthians again. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. 
So glorify God in your body. Lord, I pray that these truths about slavery and your design in your laws and what that was intended to do would sink in and help us to understand our relationship to you better. That in serving you, we find true freedom. And I pray that you'd help us to to take these principles to heart and learn how to apply them in our own modern context today. That we would think about the world the way that you do. That we would be shaped by your word. We're thankful that we have been bought. We're thankful for the price that was paid. We see your grace and your mercy and your love in that. Enable us to live a response of gratitude, that we would be like the slave who looks around at the household that he's in and says, this is the best place for me to be. This is where I have true freedom. And so I choose to live here. Help us to love being part of your household and serving you. Thank you for being the best master possible. We pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.